And so it really is that time in the market, proper asset allocation, making sure you have exposure to the asset classes that are correct for you and for your plan and for your situation so that you don't have to worry about missing these days, weeks, or months um, because the data is very clear about how detrimental that can be when you miss even just 10 of the best days. Welcome to the Trusted Partner Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer and Gabe Chodak. Jesse and Gabe are relationship managers at Cobblestone Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm that serves families and individuals in all aspects of their financial lives. All opinions expressed by Jesse and Gabe or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Cobblestone Capital Advisors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Cobblestone Capital Advisors may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. We want to hear from you. Send us an email with questions, suggestions, or content ideas to our email address, podcasts at cobblestonecap.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Trusted Partner Podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Trusted Partner Podcast. Gabe, we're recording right now. It's the end of 2023. It's December 29th. This episode is going to get released, though, next week, beginning of 2024. And we thought that we'd reach out to our fans, our listeners, some of our clients, and do another Ask Us Anything episode. So we have some pretty cool questions lined up here today that you and I, I think, will just go back and forth and provide some answers to some some basic and then some somewhat complex planning personal finance questions. I know you do a lot of reaching out to fans, Jesse, but a lot of fans actually reached out to me and asked some great questions. Really looking forward to this. Great way to start off the new year. Um, and we actually put together a, a loose content calendar for the upcoming year. So I'm really excited about a lot of the episodes uh, coming forward. Agreed, agreed. And now, I, actually, you had mentioned before, it's hard for you to walk through the village of Pittsburgh just because so many people are flagging you down from the podcast, right? Your fans, my understanding is, as you walk down Shown Place, like people are, are calling your name from across the canal. Is that still true? Well, it's just hard for me to walk depending on the distance. Um, but not necessarily because of the fans. Well, without further ado, let's get into a, a fun Ask Us Anything episode here on episode 36 of the Trusted Partner Podcast. All right, Gabe. So the first question, and this is one that we actually, we've heard from quite a few people. We've heard from uh, clients and non-clients alike. People noticed that their investing accounts took a pretty big jump in November and December, a positive jump, a good jump. And they just want to know what what happened. What caused the market? I just looked this morning. Uh, the S&P is up 16% since uh, the end of October, 16% in two months. And they want to know why. Some of it may be a little counterintuitive to other pieces we've done and other guests we've had on and our thoughts in general, um, because we know that the economy is not the stock market, and the stock market is not the economy. Um, however, there there were some pretty favorable inflation data points that came through and were released uh, that gave this kind of new, re, renewed hope of some perhaps a soft landing for the economy. So that that's really where we saw kind of the biggest jump. Um, but you know, there there's other reasons as well. Right. And the thing that I think of, Gabe, is at any given time, including right now, 
uh, the stock market has certain opinions priced in to the current valuations. In other words, there are certain future-leaning assumptions that investors are making that inform them on what today's correct price should be. So if we go back to October, what, what you just alluded to is the fact that the market as a whole was maybe a little bit more pessimistic than it should have been. And then when that inflation data came out, when Chairman Jay Powell came out and said that he might not be raising interest rates any further, the, the market realized that it was positioned more pessimistically than it should have been. And very rapidly and very suddenly, they said, we need to reprice to a more optimistic stance. And then in the remaining weeks, as that um, some more of that pessimism has shaken out, we've just seen the market rally further and further. It goes back to some of the points that we've made before and are always worth iterating that you can't really predict when right. that's going right. to happen. I would be shocked to see a lot of people having timed that quick turn so perfectly. And so it really is that time in the market, proper asset allocation, making sure you have exposure to the asset classes that are correct for you and for your plan and for your situation so that you don't have to worry about missing these days, weeks, or months, um, because the data is very clear about how detrimental that can be when you miss even just 10 of the best days. Yeah, great point, Gabe. Let's go on to the, the next question. Uh, this one comes from Mary. Mary said, when I watch the news, I see the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, and they usually all go up or all go down on a given day, but sometimes in significantly different amounts. Which one should I be looking at as a uh, barometer for my portfolio? And and maybe Gabe, we can answer this question. Uh, maybe we can answer this question specifically for clients here, based on what we know of client portfolios. But we can also answer it just based on listeners who aren't clients who who might just have a, a different portfolio construction. Right, and and there are so many different indices out there, um, and some of it's generational too, which is really interesting. I find that older generations. Uh, usually utilize the Dow Jones and younger generations generally use the S&P 500. Um, but as the question alluded to, there are others. And so it, it really depends, right? It depends on your portfolio and how you are allocated and what your overall exposure is. If you are an investor that just owns NASDAQ stocks or just owns tech stocks, then the NASDAQ's probably appropriate for you. Um, if you're a little bit more globally diversified uh, investor, then you should be kind of looking at all of them because different parts of your portfolio are doing different things. And, and that includes you know the international indices as well. Um, the Russell 3000 is always a great one as well. That's kind of the barometer of the 3000 largest, uh, you know, stocks in in the US. And so um, that can give you a little bit more of both the large cap and the mid cap and getting into a little bit more small cap as well. So they, there really are a lot of options and you probably also own bonds as well. And so looking at, you know, the Barclays aggregate is also an, an impactful thing to look at. So we, Mary, we just gave you, don't just look at one. Now <laughs> right, you're looking right. at ones you didn't even know existed. Something I thought, I think for the, for the most generic investor who hopefully has a broadly diversified stock allocation, 
And so this, right, this isn't specific advice, it's generic advice. But if someone's sitting there going, I know that 70% of my portfolio is stocks, and I've been told that it's broadly diversified across the US, especially, maybe even some international exposure. If I had to pick one, I would suggest you look at the S&P 500, just because it's, it's usually on the news, uh, it's covered by even like small TV stations, that kind of thing. But the better answer for sure is exactly what Gabe said. It's specific to your portfolio. It probably comprises a few different indices that you want to be aware of how certain indices correlate to different parts of your portfolio and, and in what percentage. But it's a little bit nitty gritty. Either way, the fact that you're paying attention is a great start. And uh, hopefully our answers shine some light for you. And just to add a little bit please, more please. on that, you also want to make sure that you understand that if you do own a more diversified portfolio, then what the S&P 500 does is not going to be completely reflective of what your portfolio does. And that's okay. Um, it may be a hard pill to swallow when the S&P 500 is up 25% and you and your portfolio are up 15. Um, but remember that works the other way as well when the S&P is down 25 or 30% and you may not be because of a diversified portfolio. Absolutely. Hit the nail on the head. Awesome. Let's go on to Joseph's question. Joseph asked, why would anyone leave money in a bank checking account or savings account right now? With money markets and CDs and treasuries at 5% plus, why leave money in a low interest bank account? Yeah, the really great question, Joe. And Jesse, I, I really want to hear your thoughts first and then I'll, I'll add on. Sure, sure. So I, I think uh, Joseph might be leading the witness a little bit with his question because there's not really much of a good reason to leave any sort of significant money in a low interest bank account right now. Uh, a good example would be, you know, a lot of maybe the, the tried and true banks, the ones that you've heard of in your community, they might only be paying a tenth of a percent or a couple tenths of a percent on their savings accounts, probably zero on checking right now. If you want to keep a month's worth of expenses there, simply because that's where you maybe write your checks out of, uh, because that's where you pay your credit card bills, they auto draft out of that account, do that. You, you need the liquidity in that account. But anything beyond that month or maybe two months of expenses, in my opinion, should be somewhere earning the 5% risk-free that it could be right now. One example would be a high-yield savings account that we use here at Cobblestone. Another example might be a money market account, something like that. Uh, but as Joseph alluded to, there are risk-free ways to earn 5% right now, which when you compare to a tenth of a percent, it, it's not even close. Right. And and that's where understanding the options and the differences, um, right, whereas some may be FDIC insured up to a certain amount. Um, money market funds, um, well, very, very stable. I, if you look back in history, and this isn't to spook anyone, but there have been times when those have moved. moved. Granted, it was like one cent, um, and it was during the great financial crisis. Um, but that doesn't mean it's risk-free. Um, you also really have to consider liquidity, like Jesse said. Um, you should make sure that you're paying your bills and there's no issues with liquidity to do so. And also thinking about your time and how much that's worth. Um, you know, if if 
it's $5,000 that you are moving to a money market fund and then you have to go in, you have to sell it, you have to wait for it to you know, settle and then move it over. How much time are you spending when you're spending that 5,000 on bills in the next couple weeks? Um, so just be cognizant of your time. Um, and one other piece too, um, in the question it asked about CDs, um, CDs, usually have some sort of illiquidity. And so when you are locking up your money, you definitely want to be aware of that and make sure you don't need those funds, but also make sure that you're being paid a premium for that illiquidity. Um, if those rates are very similar or less than what a you know high yield savings account is offering, then you may want to consider that instead of a CD. So question for you, Gabe, let's say you're, you're working with a client, hypothetical, I'm just going to make the math easy, easy. they spend $10,000 a month. Uh, how much money would you have to see in their low interest savings account where you then are, feel compelled to say to them, hey, you probably should make a change. You probably should think about a high yield savings account or a money market. Does that make sense? I mean, how, how much extra cash should someone have lying around before they think to themselves, I should make a change? Right. I, that's a great question. And it really is individual. I mean, there is, right, there's kind of textbook answers to a lot of things. And then there's just what people feel comfortable with. Um, and a lot of people, they like to log into their bank account and see that cash there. Even if it's in a separate account, it's some people can't reconcile that as easily. Um, so, you know, if you have $10,000 of monthly uh, expenses, again, we're trying to make this simple because mm -hmm. there's probably cash flow coming in at certain points during the month as well. Um, but you should definitely keep, you know, at least 10 and, and probably around 15, right? Because you, you also have to consider the that extra $5,000. Yes, 5% is a great yield. 5% on $5,000 that probably is going to be going out anyways at some point to help replenish is probably not that significant that you're giving anything up. I like it. Awesome. Thanks for that question, Joseph. And if I didn't thank you before, Mary, thank you for your question previously. Let's go on to Justin's question. Justin said, hey guys, I'm reviewing the specifics of a mutual fund that I'm considering selling due to its high expense ratio. When I also noticed it has a 5% sales load on it. What's a sales load and how is it calculated? Wow, this is a loaded question. Uh, Jesse, why, why don't you go ahead? Sure, sure. So I've uh, had some experience with sales loads before, just in reviewing other people's portfolios. Uh, a sales load is a, uh, a trait that some mutual funds, not all mutual funds have. Uh, it's usually tied to actively managed mutual funds, but it's not necessarily rule of thumb. And as the name implies, it is a, a fee uh, specifically tied to the sale of that fund. Uh, sometimes the sales load occurs up front when you initially buy the fund. Sometimes the sales load occurs on the back end when you sell the fund. Uh, but either way, it's, it's usually a, a fee that, for lack of a better term, it's just because. Just because we can charge you for buying or selling this fund, we are going to. Uh, in my opinion, and I think in your opinion too, Gabe, and I hope I'm okay saying in Cobblestone's opinion, sales loads are not a good thing. Uh, it's a frictional cost that usually doesn't benefit investors. It, it benefits the mutual fund companies running those funds. So 
if at all possible, avoiding sales loads is is a good thing for for the investor. Justin, specifically, you you mentioned that you're considering selling something. Um, so, if it's a sales load, you've already paid that, um, but there could be you know a back end load, and so you'll want to understand what that is. You want to understand how much it costs you. You're going to want to understand what will you purchase instead and what's the expense ratio of that and so all else equal you know how many years of holding that new investment will it take to overcome the back-end sales load if there is one um, with the discrepancy between that higher fee versus assuming you're going to buy a lower fee um, fund or etf Right. And just for for listeners who are curious, you know, I think about maybe some of the the passive funds that we hold here, Gabe, as an example, where you can own a, you can own an index usually for hundredths of a percentage point, maybe up to a tenth of a percentage point. And here we're talking about a sales load that is five percent. In other words, 50 to 500 times more expensive than the kind of annual fees that that someone might pay on a, a passive fund like the ones we hold. So just to give you a frame of reference, I mean, 5% as a fee on a single mutual fund is pretty high. Just to get in just or to get out in. Right. as well. That's right. not even, um, you know, there are different vehicles, different funds, different investments where there is added value from the active managers in there and you are paying for that in an expense ratio. Um, but to then on top of that, just pay a, a commission essentially just to pay one is, is pretty ludicrous. Cool. Thank you for that question, Justin. Uh, let's go on to Kyle's question. Kyle said, if I buy and sell investments in my taxable brokerage account, what is the sequence of events that eventually lead to everything I need to know regarding capital gains? whether short, long-term, what taxes I owe, what forms I fill out, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I'm not precisely sure uh, what Kyle is, is looking for, but I think we can provide some sort of capital gains answers here that hopefully do fill in, uh, fill in the gaps in, in what Kyle's asking for. Yeah, and Kyle, we're just gonna, we're gonna guess anyways, and we're gonna read your mind, and <laughs> if it's not right, um, just stop me in, in the village of Pittsford and, and let me know. Definitions are really important here, understanding what capital gains are. Capital gains are the difference between the current value of an asset and the value that you purchased for. So the value that you purchased it for is referred to as the cost basis. And then the value um, that it currently is at is the price. And if that price is higher than when you purchased it or your cost basis, the difference is the capital gain. And so currently in the US tax system, um, you only pay capital gains when they are realized. You only pay capital gains taxes. Correct. Right, right, when you when you realize those gains. So if I'm holding on to the stock, even if it is more expensive than what I bought it for, that's an unrealized capital gain because I'm still holding it. But as soon as I sell it, and specifically sell it inside of a taxable account, I have now realized that capital gain I have to report that on my taxes at the end of the year, and most likely I'm going to have to pay taxes on that at the end of the year. Correct. And, and the percentage that you owe is based on your income. Um, it can really either be zero, 15%, or 20% federally, and then some states have them as well. Um, so it, it can certainly 
add up and something that you want to be cognizant of. Um, but if the purpose of investing is to provide liquidity for something down the road, those will be a natural occurrence. And gains are a good thing. It is a lot better than having losses in your portfolio, right. which you can also realize to offset some gains. But that's probably a, a another separate episode altogether. Um, also worth noting too, and, and this will all be reported from whoever your custodian is, you will receive a form 1099, which will list out everything. And it also includes your income and dividends. And so um, if you're getting interest from bonds or bond funds, or the stocks, whether funds or individuals are providing dividends, that is also all taxable income in a taxable account. And so um, with a few caveats that we don't need to get into. And so that will show up on that, um, on that form as well that you'll receive. Exactly right. I was going to say that too, Gabe. So, so Kyle, I mean, the one thing you asked about was kind of what's the sequence of events and and one good note is that the custodian, Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, whoever, you are essentially paying them to be a record keeper, to be a note keeper. And so they should be keeping track of when you bought your assets uh, and, and how much you bought them for, what that cost basis was, when you sold them, because that might be the difference between a short-term gain and a long-term gain, and those are taxed differently. So the custodian is going to take care of all of that. They're going to send you the 1099. Now, one interesting thing to keep in mind is you know, Vanguard might not realize that you also have an account at Schwab, and neither one of them is going to realize that you also have an account at Fidelity. So that's why each custodian is going to send you their own 1099, and it's your job, perhaps with a tax preparer, to assemble all those into your overall 1040 tax return uh, with gains and losses potentially offsetting, as Gabe alluded to. Then you have to combine that knowledge of your capital gains with your current year's adjusted gross income or AGI. And then that will dictate whether you're paying most likely the 15% capital gains tax. Uh, that's the tax bracket that applies to most American taxpayers. Although with proper tax planning, uh, for, for some people, not for all, but with a uh, proper tax planning, you can sneak in some 0% capital gains taxes, which is kind of the, the dream, if you will, um, assuming your AGI is low enough. So that's a, it's a bit of a niche. It doesn't come up for every taxpayer all the time, but it is something to keep in mind. I think you and I dream about different things, Jesse. Pat, Patty was saying sometimes at night you just you you're talking your sleep. Zero percent <laughs> tax loss harvest. Do it. I think zero percent refers to the incline on the treadmill. That's <laughs> not not tax brackets. All right, Gabe. Last question. This one is from Kelly, who may or may not be my wife. Kelly asks. Uh, when should I start planning for my child's college savings and how much should I be contributing? Kelly, great question. I wonder why that might be on your mind. Big podcast reveal. We are expecting a child in June. Congrats, Jesse. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you. I look forward to having little Gabe on the podcast soon. <laughs> um, so again, just as most things, this is an individualized question. There are a lot of variables to consider, and, and that's really when you should start planning is when you're having a child and when you and your spouse start 
discussing these types of things. And it should be discussion early on, but some of the variables you should consider, and then I'll let Jesse get into a little bit more of the details, um, but some of the variables you should consider is, you know, are there multiple children in the family or will there be multiple children? Um, are you saving for retirement and taking care of yourselves first? Um, is there family help? And if so, what does that look like? Um, are there potential discounts based on your employment, especially if you work at a university? Um, what does, what exists there? Um, what are you willing to pay? Some people may want to cover all of the most expensive school. Other people may say, we'll cover up to whatever public tuition is, and then the rest you're uh, you know, you're going to have some skin in the game as well. Um, so there's, lo there's lots of variables that come to planning for college savings. I think first and foremost, before, first and foremost, before you start actually contributing or setting up a specific account, perhaps a 529, perhaps something else, having those conversations and making sure as a family, you're on the same page of what you want to provide and what that looks like and also understanding that it's probably going to change because life certainly changes let's assume uh folks have that conversation and uh they are they let, they've done everything that you've just outlined and they come back to you a week later and they say gabe we, we figured it out uh you know little uh, seamus he's uh he's one year old now so we've got 17 years to plan for his first year of college and we decided as a, as a family that we want to try to contribute $100,000 total to him. What, what, what would you do with that information or, or what should this couple then do with that information knowing that they, they have a goal and they know that that 100000 of savings is going to come only from them? A any thoughts for them? Yeah, so um, they should talk to their trusted advisor um, or there's certainly some online calculators and they should look at you know what they then need to contribute to reach that point assuming good but you know conservative returns from an investment um, portfolio and they should decide as well what the appropriate vehicle is for it for a lot of people um, in the state you're in, a, a 529 plan and, and a direct 529 plan, right? Um, no advisor should be selling you a 529 plan um, where they get compensated. Each state has a you know free, well-designed, very accessible 529 plan that you can enroll in directly and has you know good you know vanguard type um you know cheap funds that can be chosen from and so um they should look at what what vehicle they want because um, there are other options as well and then look at what they need to put in each year by kind of working the math backwards um and in your situation i don't have my phone or my calculator in front of me, um, so I'm not going to provide an yeah, totally off-the-cuff answer. But <laughs> there are plenty of calculators, or again, your your investment professional should should be able to help you. Yeah. What's your personal opinion, Gabe, or just what what are maybe the spectrum opinions that you've heard regarding uh, the concept of overfunding a 529, or the concern maybe of overfunding a 529, because it's not necessarily a scenario that an investor or saver wants to get into. Yeah, and, and so it's important to remember, um, and, and this is with regards to New York State 529, 
each state has somewhat little different rules. Um, in New York State, for instance, you do get a state deduction um, on the first $10,000 contributed. That doesn't mean that that's a limit. And that's every year, first $10,000 every year. Every year. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a nice, uh, a nice perk or benefit, but the real impact is on the tax-free growth and the tax-free withdrawal to pay for education expenses. So you certainly don't want to overfund because there can be some penalties with overfunding. But remember, they can be used for postgraduate education. They can be used for other forms of education. Um, they can be transferred between you know family members. Um, so you know, and now with uh, tax, with the, the Roth, the Roth rule, the yeah, Secure Act, the, Secure yeah, 2.0 with the Act. Secure 2.0 Act. Now with the Secure 2.0 Act, um, you can take, uh, I believe it's up to thirty-five thousand dollars and of unused funds from a five twenty-nine and convert that to a Roth IRA. So, for people who are worried about overfunding. That is extremely helpful and really just not a bad planning tool in general if you have the means. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, that I just uh, I did a little deep dive on that uh, 529 to Roth conversion the other week just because I wasn't sure of all the the you know the nitty gritty rules. Everybody knows every IRS code has these nitty gritty rules that you probably should be aware of, uh, and and that one's no different. It's the kind of thing where. I think if you're in the process of setting up an HSA or if you already have a, I'm sorry, a 529, if you're already in the process of setting up a 529 or uh, if you have one set up and you're considering that Roth conversion rule as an eventual pressure release valve for your account, I think it's worthwhile to look up some of the rules and make sure you understand what you're getting into. But you're right. It's, it's, a, terrific, uh, it's a terrific new rule benefiting uh, 529 savers. Uh, to be able to convert some of that to Roth money, because then it can be used for uh, the beneficiary's future retirement. It's terrific. Yeah, it it, it really is, and it, it a lot of conversations we've had with younger families or grandparents who are looking to fund um, five twenty nine accounts or college accounts. The overfunding piece usually is a part of that conversation. Um, there's always jokes in there as well about, you know, no, no possible way to overfund what college is going to cost in the future. Um, but it, it is a real concern and it can absolutely happen. And, you know, we, we don't know what our children are going to do. Not all children will go to college. Some may go to a college and receive scholarship funds. Some may go and um, to a trade school or other things that may not cost as much as the 529 was planned on supplying. So having that release valve is definitely a, a nice new perk um, that should absolutely be utilized. As you know, we usually do a question to uh, end so our listeners can get to know us better. And it's just Jesse and me here today. So in light of Jesse looking to become a father, um, you know, Jesse, I think we should do with either your the best parenting advice you've received or since you haven't experienced it yet, what you think the best parenting advice that you've received so far. It's a tough one. That's a tough one because uh, I've, I've heard a lot of a lot of good advice, I think. But the one piece of advice that immediately comes to mind 
uh, is the fact that I'm certainly, you know, I've got some nerves over it. It's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a very much a binary moment in life where I think most parents who I know say there was life before kids and then there's life after kids and it just changes things completely. And, and that fact is a little bit nerve wracking, but the advice that's made me feel a lot better uh, is just the number of people who have said that you, you figure it out and it starts to come naturally and, and essentially that something in your brain kicks in and says, you are now a parent and you can do this and you, and you end up doing it very well and it ends up being the most rewarding thing in your entire life. So it's just the advice that calms down my over analytical nerves a little bit and reminds me that everything's going to be okay. And in fact, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, that, that's great advice and, and very true. We are maternal and paternal beings and, and there's definitely something that, that kicks in and you have no choice because they just kind of hand you the baby and here you go, um, which, which is very interesting. Um, for me, I would say that it, you know, kids are resilient and adaptable. Um, you know, you very scared, especially that first time changing that diaper and they're not going to break. Um, you know, that doesn't mean drop them. Um, but they are very resilient and they are adaptable. I, the favorite thing that we have done with our children is travel the world. Um, and they have adapted, they have learned, um, they will rise to the occasion and they will, um, be better for it. So they're adaptable and, uh, they won't break. Excellent advice. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you for another great year on the trusted partner podcast. I guess this is the conclusion of our first full year here on the podcast. So awesome. Thank you all for listening. And here's to uh, more excellent conversations in 2024. Cheers. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Trusted Partner Podcast. We want to start answering some of your questions on the show. So if you have an investing, a financial planning, a personal finance question, send that question to podcast at cobblestonecap.com. Once again, that's podcast at cobblestonecap.com. Thank you again for listening to the Trusted Partner Podcast.